Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson and with me as always is... Lucas Stock. Yes, and this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we explore, discuss, and grow as followers of Christ. So Lucas, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about books. Uh, I know that you and I both love our books. For the longest time, my wife and I didn't have a bookshelf, and we literally had <laughs> mountains and mountains and mountains of books just stacked on the floor. And finally, we found a bookshelf actually at a uh, thrift store, but like in amazing condition. So it was like 15 Ooh, bucks nice. for this thing. And so it's pretty clutch. <laughs> We're still, we really need a second one though, because we have like still way too many books. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, we're we're going to be talking about our five books that we think every Christian ought to read, um, whether that's a new believer, whether that's an old believer. Um, these are key essential books that we have read that we think other Christians should read or maybe even they have to read because they're that important. So um, interesting. I think it's right. <laughs> I think it's important to say off the bat, though, that you and I have not discussed our lists together. Right. Um, so Lucas has his five. I have my five. Maybe some will overlap. I'm guessing there's probably going to be no overlap, but yeah. I could be wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what's going to happen. So Lucas, if you'd like to take it away, we're gonna we're actually gonna start with some honorable mentions because again, we love books so much we couldn't narrow it down to five. So, yep. if you'd like to start, yeah. So, um, I actually have two honorable mentions because uh, right. I I had one on my list that I ended up bumping out, uh, and I'll I'll explain why when I get to it. Um, I also think, uh, like Jen said, uh, these are books we've read. Um, so there's definitely you know even books i'm currently reading that i kind of wish i could put on this list but uh i don't feel like if i haven't finished it i can really give it a full endorsement or say that every christian should read um and then the other thing is to keep in mind is is as i was crafting this list i i thought it was i was you know talking about this a little bit ago before we started recording i thought it was going to be a really easy process where i was going to just have mountains of of books to to just narrow down. Um, but then I realized that a lot of the books that I've had to read, especially in recent years as a, a student at a Bible college and then a seminary, um, aren't necessarily books that are geared towards every Christian. And that's not to say that those books aren't worth reading for every Christian, but not every Christian is going to be interested in, you know, a technical discussion on certain fine-tuned aspects of you know <laughs> debates in theology from the 17th century or, or something right. you know you know more academic focus that gets more specific and technical and you know um again personally based on my interests you sh i think those books are super interesting so you should read them but that's just because that's what i'm into so that was part of what i was really conscious of is like if if somebody came to me asking me for books that they should read just you know, that they could take with them no matter what their background is, no matter what their experience, what their education or knowledge or interests are as a Christian, books that are important. So because of that, these two books that I think are really good got bumped off the list into honorable mentions. Uh, so the there first is The Story of Christian Theology by Roger Olson. Oh, um, this is an outline, more or less, of... Uh, historical theology from 
the apostolic era right after the New Testament all the way to the modern era. Um, it gives an overview of major theological issues, major events in church history, um, major questions that uh, were resolved or maybe not resolved, um, looking at important figures and and uh, events like the Council of Nicaea or the Protestant Reformation. Um, and it does so in an extremely readable way. Um, it's, it's written... It's written like a story, and in the introduction, he makes a really purposeful point of saying that uh, ultimately the story of the church is a story of 2,000 years, and so he writes um, as a story. So each chapter builds on the last chapter, because if you don't have the background of what was happening in the medieval church in the West, you're not going to understand the next chapter, which is the Protestant Reformation. And if you don't understand the Protestant Reformation, you're not going to understand the next chapter, which is as um, the you know English and and uh, Western European churches uh, once they were Protestant came to the New World and how that shaped American Christianity and all these sorts of interconnected things that um, history has to offer requires understanding the church as one big story and the questions that we've wrestled with as Christians. They're all connected. And so those are all the reasons why you should read it. The reason it's not on my list is that it's like 600-something pages. And I just figured <laughs> that even though it's written really, you know, readable, it's not like super dry, it's still a lot of pages <laughs> that um It's a lot of information not, to take in, I'd imagine, too. Yeah, that, you know, 600 pages, which, you know, 2,000 years and 600 pages doesn't leave a lot of time for each year but it's (laughs) still 600 pages and you're flying through a long time and a lot of stuff so not everyone's going to have the time (laughs) just to to sit down and uh have and and be able to read that so so i figured highly recommended if you're interested in church history or historical theology um but probably not a you know required reading for for a christian um i can give my other honorable mention or you want to give your I, I, no, go ahead. Yeah, you do 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 both of yours, then okay. I'll, I'll do mine. Okay. Um, my other honorable mention uh, is a book called "God Is Impassable and Impassioned" by Rob Ooh. Lister. Um, so Ooh. this this book is the reason it's it's honorable mention, not on my list. Is it's a bit on the technical side, theologically. Um, it's it's written really accessibly. He does a good job. Uh, like like the like Roger Olson's book. It's it's not dry or overly like complicated you know sentences for no reason that kind of thing um but it the 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 information and the concepts that he's working with definitely are a little more technical a little more you know um academic theology kind of things not to say that that's they're unimportant or you know uh like unnecessary um but it is a little more involved of, of a conversation. And and what he's doing, Rob Lister, is exploring um, the doctrine of God's impassibility. Um, uh, this is related to the doctrine of immutability, uh, that God can't change. But impassibility specifically um, is the idea that God does not or cannot um, experience passions or emotions. Um, at the very least... The way that we do 
and right. and there's there's you know it's a there's a long history of of this doctrine it, com- it comes from from classical theism all the way back to the apostles um and you know a lot of people would argue because it's in scripture <laughs> um and uh he does a good job of exploring that history and tracing it and kind of introducing uh, the major, you know, streams of thought throughout church history um, to kind of give some context. And then he goes into sort of uh, arguments for impassibility, arguments for passability, sort of, you know, giving both sides and then giving sort of a, a very historically informed, biblical, faithful, orthodox, evangelical uh, conclusion where he puts forward um, you know, his thesis that, as the title suggests, um, it, you know, sounds contradictory, but really it's not. But God is both impassable and impassioned. And, you know, I won't spoil it for you, but that's uh, it gets into the nitty gritty of, of what those what you what you mean by um, those words and stuff. And so even as I'm saying this, like you might be thinking, oh, that just sounds like really abstract theolo- theologizing, you know, in an ivory tower. But he makes it really practical in in his um the way he analyzes these things and also his use of scripture and and especially his towards the end he he, he gives some really important christological formulations and and how these things affect our our view of what it you know who is christ what is he like what is the incarnation what does that do um and you know a big example of why this is a practical topic is is the question of can god suffer um, is a big one, and it has profound implications for, like I said, the incarnation, for the cross, for God's relation to us as uh, humans living in this world where we see so much suffering all the time. Um, and another reason that, the final reason I'll say that, that this book is great is it's a, it's a really amazing example of theological scholarship that's done for the church. Um, he's got history, scripture, theology and it's all presented in a way that's that's meant to be constructive and um ultimately to serve the church in in understanding god and worshiping him it's not just you know a book to you know make some money or impress your doctor friends or whatever um so like i said it's it's a little more technical it's a little more involved um but because of the way he he writes, I, I think that it's worth the investment, especially if you were to do like a like a study group or or maybe read it as a small group or along with a friend where you can kind of talk through and bounce ideas off each other. I read it in a class and then we had to write a paper. And so I had sort of um, not the exact same, but that kind of, you know, I got to interact not just by myself with the book. So um, those would be my honorable mentions. The Story of Christian Theology by Roger Olson and God is Impassable and Impassioned by Rob Lister. All right. Well, I have one honorable mention, though I could also have like seven, um, <laughs> but I figured I would uh, not bore you with all of those. So uh, so one of the reasons this is an honorable mention is because it's technically a work of fiction. Um, and it's the the Screwtape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Right. And uh, man, I, so when I was thinking fiction, I was like, man, there aren't really a lot of like Christian fiction books that I'd want to put on this list. The only other one might be the Pilgrim's Progress, but I've never read the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. so I couldn't include it in the list, though I know it's a classic, but I have read the Screwtape Letters and it is a work of fiction, though the reason I have it on my list of five books that Christians ought to read is because despite the fact that it's fiction, I think a lot of what is in this book 
is pretty true to life. And thus, if we can understand those realities, it can help us um, better learn about ourselves, better learn how we, you know, maybe should live in this world. And if you've never read Screwtape Letters, I'll just sort of give you a brief synopsis. Basically, uh, it's about these two demons. So there's Screwtape and Wormwood. And so Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a demon in training, so to speak. This demon is learning how to uh, essentially make his Christian fall, how to make his, um, you know, how to make the the enemy, which is God, which is hard at first to like understand that the enemy (laughs) is God, how to make like the enemy's people fall. Um, And so like Screwtape is this uh, senior demon. He's writing to his nephew and just explaining like chapter after chapter via these letters um, you know, if you attack this, this is going to happen. Like if you attack his, um, his virtue, if you go after, like make him think about being lazy, about wanting to just, when he comes home from work to do nothing, um, and what that inevitably will lead to. And so again, like I said, it's not, it's not, it's not reality per se, um, you know, because we, this probably isn't how demons function. I mean, I guess we have no way of knowing, but um, some of the some of the dark comedy, some of the um, again poignant insights into the human psyche, and that's really what he did. Like I remember reading an article about like Lewis's process of writing this book, mm-hmm. like getting into the mind of a demon and how a demon might want to tempt, lure, deceive his subject, and mm-hmm. he also had to be really fine tuned into like the human psyche and the human mind and like what things man is naturally inclined to want, what uh, vices, what sins. And so again, like uh, I think it's a really insightful, really helpful book. Plus it's fiction. It's like fun. Cause a lot of these that I'm going to talk about, like they're not necessarily fun in like the, <laughs> the, the real sense of the word, though I find them fun. Um, Screw tape letters is a very interesting read in my opinion. And again, that's, that's CS Lewis, you know, Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Um, he has he has other um, like theological works that are all really good, like Mere Christianity and um, I'm trying to remember like A Grief Observed and and others like that, which are also Four pretty loves. good though though yeah the Four Loves though not on my list, but that's a great book. So now, Lucas, your book number five. What do you what do you got? All right. So I I didn't put these in order um, of like five to one or or whatever, but I I will I will put them in order. It'll just be a little bit of a rough order. So I would say my my book number five um, is a little book in more than one way called uh, Mere Sexuality by Todd Wilson. Oh, man. Um, Todd Wilson is a uh, – I don't know if he's actually still at, at his church. He, he he is a pastor or was a pastor in the Chicagoland area. He's. I think he still um, is. He's – okay. Um, and he's uh, – I forget his title <laughs> – president or director or whatever of the center for pastor theologians uh yes which is a i'm not super familiar with with them but but i i've you know like this book and and some other stuff i've i've come in contact it's just a really cool organization you know uh theology for the church you know and right and they exist to like kind of like we talked about in a couple a couple episodes ago we talked about how pastors are theologians or they ought to be and so it is it's an organization that sort of is aimed at helping pastors be good theologians yeah and so he comes with you know not i mean you know i'm sure he messes up and he's not perfect but he really comes at 
this this topic of sexuality with with uh, both the heart of a pastor and a, one of a theologian um and the reason that i chose this book is is it's really it's a really good sort of I guess you'd say like an overview of sexuality um, in different ways, like, um, you know, same-sex attraction and homosexuality versus, you know, celibacy, marriage. Um, You know, it talks about the sexuality of Jesus and the way that human sexuality um, or or how human sexuality is a part of the incarnation, what that means. So it's, it's a little broad, just sexuality in general it's not about marriage or about um the incarnation or whatever but it it he you know mere sexuality he's really trying to introduce a christian a a faithful biblical orthodox view of human sexuality and um and playing off of c.s lewis's mm -hmm. mere christianity which i just mentioned there you go (laughs) (laughs) um and and i think he does a really good job um i really enjoyed it. it it's it's again, really easy to read, um, that, you know, it's very pastorally written, um, not just in the content, but in the, the form and the, and the way that he writes. Um, hmm. and it, it is a really, really good, um, sort of touch point and, and, you know, like it, it gives, it gives some, some, some hooks that you can hang your, your conversations and your ideas. And, and if you're a pastor, you know, um, ways to preach about it or if if you're you know walking with somebody who has some kind of um question or struggle with sexuality and everybody does i think that's even one of his points is just um everybody's sexuality is broken because we are all sinners it's broken in different ways that impacts people in different in different areas of their life but because of that it's a really great resource um uh to for, for every Christian, not just pastors or not just theologians, to um, really get a, a, a foundational sort of grasp on different issues related to sexuality. And what what made me really want to include it is, is how that's just in our culture, you know, in our context here in the West, in America, and in, in our time, it's such an important issue. It's just so relevant. Um for the church to be talking about um, that I think it's, it's, you know, important to have a, a good accessible resource on that topic. And I think Todd Wilson does a great job with mere sexuality. Right. Very cool. Well, my book number five is actually one that I was required to read at Moody in my, oh man, I, I've been trying to think of and remember the name of the class for the longest time. Um, <laughs> And I, it, it escapes me, but it, if you if you can help me remember, it's the class that like, um, it's one of the intro classes. Everybody has to take it. Um, Slack. N- no, no, I just feel dumb. Disciple making. <laughs> I, I, it was not intro to disciple making. I, I, it's not important, I guess, what class it was, <laughs> but it was one of those intro classes that everybody has to take at Moody. Um, but it's called, <clears throat> excuse me, it's called Christ Formed in You. And it's essentially a very broad, uh, overarching book about like foundations and patterns and means of like gospel transformation. And so, like it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a really helpful book if you're a new believer, um, and it's also a helpful book if you're a seasoned believer because it it sort of gives you a reminder, um, a glimpse into 
maybe areas that you need to improve or areas that you are doing well but want to improve. But I guess the, the idea is he, he starts off with the book with the foundational problem in the world, which is sin. I mean, he's talking about the fact that, you know, as humanity, we fell into sin. Um, sin is the problem. And so, like, what's the solution? And we know that the mm. solution is the gospel. And from the gospel, he talks about justification. He talks about um, sanctification. He talks about holiness. Uh, he talks about mortification. So, you know, killing our sin, putting our sin to death. Mm. He talks about vivification, which is like the idea of growing in grace, growing um, as mature believers. Uh, he talks about how the Christian life is a life um, for joy, ultimately. Like you know, this whole world, everything that we do in this in this life is a searching after joy. Oftentimes, it's obviously aimed at the wrong joys and the wrong passions, but mm. give, getting back to like the true motiv- motivation, the true source of joy. Um, it talks about like different spiritual disciplines um and stuff like that so it's just a really helpful um like foundational book that like gives you the basics you know again like a topic like justification can be an entire book on its on its own um but to break it down really simply into an easy to understand idea of like what does it mean to be justified like what does it mean to be sinners in the presence of a holy god and to stand before him and pray to be his children um and stuff like that. So it was a really helpful book for me when I was at Moody. Um, it was, you know, one of those books that, uh, I think I've recommended on a number of occasions too. Like when I was a youth pastor, I often recommended it to students who were like, just trying to understand like basic Christian foundation principles. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's on my list at number five. Awesome. Um, all right. So number four for me, uh, this is, kind of funny um is uh, a fiction book by c.s lewis <laughs> oh man called the great divorce um Ooh. and uh if you haven't read the great divorce um i recommend it but um it's about um it's kind of it's basically about heaven and hell and um the the sort of a, one person's i guess you could say journey from one to the other. I don't want to get too into it because um, part of part of what made it so impactful for me was was the way that his depiction of, of heaven and his depiction of hell, as well as um, the, the the human characters sort of experiencing and encountering heaven um, in the way that they do in the book. Um, like I, it, <laughs> I read this book in eighth grade. And I haven't read it since, and <laughs> I still think about it. I still, you know, remember it as being a really impactful, profound sort of exploration of, you know, like um, just way of of, of uh, gaining a certain perspective on both heaven and hell um, that are definitely, you know, it's fiction it's not saying this is what heaven looks like or whatever but but the the principles that are sort of underlying what he does with heaven and what he does with hell are are really profound and have really shaped the way that i think about those sorts of things think about what it means um to you know have a hope of heaven of, of of being able to be in god's presence one day and and what does it mean for someone to be separated from god and and to be um, alienated from fellow man and themselves the way that they were not meant to be. 
Um, hmm. Those sorts of questions are, are what that this book has left me. I, I actually in in making this list when I thought of it, I, I I'm planning on rereading it here soon because um, it's been so long since I read it. I want to see you know how I experience it now. But regardless, I think it's it's you know a fantastic. It's C.S. Lewis, so it's amazingly right. written. It's fun to read. Um, and it's really, really meaningful and, and definitely left an impact on me. And, and so I'd, I'd definitely recommend The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. There you go. Well, it's funny that you had mere sexuality on your list because mm-hmm. I, too, have a book about sexuality, though not the same one. Also, you gave me a copy of Mere Sexuality. I have read that. It is a good book. <laughs> um, I actually have Holy Sexuality. Mm-hmm. And the Gospel by Christopher, is it Ewan? Ewan, I think. Ewan. So by Christopher Ewan, uh, who is a professor at Moody still? Is he, is he still? Yeah, he, he left Moody like right around the time while I was there, while we were there, like right around then. But then he came he came back and he, so he teaches. I don't know if, I don't think he's full time, but he, he does teach at Moody still currently. Gotcha. All right. Well, th- like I said, this is uh, my book number four, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. And this is a book that actually came out this past year. And so it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, in the 2000 years of church history that I'm suggesting a book from last year that every Christian should read. Um, But I guess that just goes to show how important I think it is and how, um, uh, I guess, like, how much it will change the way that you think about sexuality, but also like the gospel. Um, and, and so if you don't know who this is, uh, he's actually somebody who at one point in his life, um, was living a homosexual lifestyle who, um, was sort of like, I think, wasn't he raised in the church and, um, sort of as he lived, he, he transitioned out of that, out of that life and was living a homosexual lifestyle, but then was, um, you know, changed and transformed and, and is now living a, um, a chaste celibate lifestyle, um. But what's so intriguing about this book is not that he, it's not like, it's not a book about homosexuality where someone's like, stop being gay and just like be heterosexual and uh, everything's going to be fine. You'll get married, your life will be great. Because like there are books that are like that, um, but that's not this book, right? Like he, he's trying to change even our concept of sexuality as it is. That's why it's called holy sexuality, mm. because um, he talks about how out of like the enlightenment, out of... uh, modernity and modern thinking how there's this idea of you know there's heterosexual and there's homosexual and how like you either got to be one or the other if you're homosexual and you're trying to be a christian we'll stop and you got to be heterosexual and you'll be fine um but one of the points that he makes is that we must recognize that heterosexuality is not synonymous with biblical marriage and he's not saying that it's not that um but he's saying that that's not even necessarily the point the point isn't to be heterosexual like your identity isn't as a heterosexual your identity is found in christ and so like his definition for holy sexuality which he repeats um all throughout the book is that um holy sexuality consists of two paths chastity uh in singleness and faithfulness in marriage and so whether we're Mm -hmm. single whether we're married the whole point is holiness we are not you know we're not seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake but we're seeking to honor and glorify the lord so in our singleness how do we do that well we remain chaste we um you know aren't sleeping around we aren't um consuming pornography we aren't um you know having lustful thoughts uh enter our mind constantly 
um, but we, we have um, a purity, a holiness in our singleness, and at the same time, and possibly even more so in marriage, you know, we, we are not, you know, committing adultery, we're not cheating on our spouse, we're not fantasizing about other men or women, we're not, um, you know, having inappropriate relationships uh, at work or wherever. And so again, like the whole point of this book, and especially, especially in our, in our current political world um, that is so focused on, you know, LGBTQ um, community and, and all that that contains, um, I think this is a really insightful and helpful book for people in both camps, people that are in um, the world of LGBTQ and people in the Christian world, because I think it, it focuses and forces um, both sides to sort of reevaluate mm. and think more critically about these things and in a, a much more uh, robust way. And so again, it's, it's, it's sort of trying to get at the heart of what it means, kind of like you mentioned, what it means to be human, what it means to be, um, to be, to have a sexuality, um, how that's expressed, because ultimately we are not uh, sexual beings. We weren't created for sex necessarily. Like that's not the the purpose for being here. Right. Um, and so it, it's, it's a really good book, really helpful. And I think um, people would do well to read it. Yep. Um, I actually haven't read this, this, but uh, me and Elaine do have a copy and uh, on page 216, big shout out to uh, my boy, Connor Ham, getting the acknowledgement from Dr. Yuan there for um, helping him out or whatever. Um, just want to point that out. Cause I think that's hilarious that, um, oh yeah, there it is. In the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember that when I read it, but yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, sweet. Um, so book number three for me, this is going to be tough. I guess I'm going to go with, um, ah, well, okay. I'm going to go with this one. So for number three, um, a book called violence by Jacques Ellul. I think the subtitle is like, um, reflections from a christian perspective or or something like that and this one i was a little conflicted putting it on the list i I wasn't sure if if it really was a great fit for for this list um but i decided to put it on because it is a book that had more than you know there are only a few books that have had as profound an impact on my thinking as this book has had or had on me when i read it and like i can vividly remember sitting in my apartment reading this book and thinking to myself before i was even done with it this is a book that i will always remember that i am always going to be coming back to um for for what it's saying and as the title implies, it's it's a book about violence. Um, Jacques Ellul was a French sociologist, philosopher. Um, he taught at the University of Bordeaux. He wrote a lot of, of sociological and theological books um, on a variety of, of, of topics. But he was a um, he, he's one of my favorite thinkers um, that I'm always excited to spend more time with. He, the the works that I've read of his have been very um, challenging and, and unique and, um, definitely, definitely worth it. Um, particularly if like me, um, you have an interest in politics, political theology, um, the role of, um, the state, the role of the church in the world, those kinds of questions, um, are things that he touches on a lot. And in violence, you know, I, I, 
don't want to get too bogged down in the minutia, but he's he's exploring biblically, theologically, um, violence as it as it pertains to things like just war. What does the Bible teach us about war? What does the Bible teach us about interpersonal violence? What are we supposed to do with violence? He talks about Christians who are pacifists, Christians who are pro-violent, not pro-violence, but like, you know, believe there is a place for violence. Um, And um, he kind of explores these different spheres of, 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 you know, theologies of violence you know he talks about revolutionary violence versus state violence um and you know he he was writing in the the mid to to late 20th century i think this book came out in like the 60s and he's french so he talks a lot about the um algerian national liberation front and then their war for independence and and for national liberation against french colonialism and and the the really tough questions that those kinds of um, conflicts bring up. And w- when I say this had an impact on my thinking, it, it completely revamped and, and shaped the way that I think about violence, particularly politically. Um, and one of the things that, that has always really stuck out to me is his description of um, the way that, um, so I'll use like like an example of, of you know, a colonial revolution and the 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 violence that a uh, revolutionary struggle consists of is ultimately a reaction to the violence of the colonizers against the colonized people. So this initial violence from the colonizers sort of spawns this violent response from the colonized. But then when they kick out the colonizers, that violence is going to have its own reciprocal violence that comes on it because people don't want to be kicked out of their territory and, and things like that. And ultimately what he, what he's getting at is this, but he, he really points out something profound in this cycle of violence of where one violent act begets another violent act begets another one. And it doesn't just stop at, you know, I hit you. So you hit me. But it's this ongoing cycle that feeds into and, and, and contributes to to violence perpetuating itself. Um, and I'll stop there because um, I, I don't want to, you know, get too dis- distracted, like I said. But I found it extremely, extremely impactful. This one might, like I said, a little conflicted. It might be only, you know, it might not sound as as significant to some people depending on your interests. But... Um, I, I would definitely recommend recommend reading it because it's short and it's it's a topic that I think in a violent world is extremely important to wrestle with, not just um, on our own, but to wrestle with theologically and biblically. Cool. I like it. That's one I've actually never heard of. I think that's the first one I haven't known. But let's see here. For my book number three, uh, this is one I believe I've talked about maybe even more than once already in our short time <laughs> that we've uh, had this going, but it's The Holiness of God mm. by R.C. Sproul. Um, so the reason that this is on my list is because it's one of the most profound books, especially in my early walk with the Lord that I've that I had ever read. Mm. Um, it's 
it's a word that we throw around a lot, you know, holy crap, holy cow, like, wow, look at that thing or whatever. Like we, we use that, that language a lot um, without recognizing uh, what true holiness is. And I'm not mm. sure that I even fully grasped the idea of holiness until I read this book. Um, mm. And what's so beautiful about it is, um, you know, he, he sort of starts with the reality that like God is holy, that he is transcendent, that he is far above um, anything that we could ever attain or everything, anything that we could ever want to be. Um, like he, he puts the holiness of God on a, a pedestal so high, um, just like, I mean, he uses this text. He uses Isaiah 6, that that um, that moment when Isaiah has the vision of the throne room where he's before uh, the great throne and he's like, he, you know, he hears all the creatures uh, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The world is full of his glory. Um, you know, he has that moment where he's like <clears throat> falling into the dirt and he's like, I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips uh, from a people of unclean lips and I do not belong in your presence. Um, and so like the, one of the creatures brings uh, the hot um, glowing coal with the tongs mm-hmm. and touches his lips and says, your sins have been atoned for. And it's sort of like imagery of what Christ will do uh, eventually in the future. Uh, but that, that idea, that picture of God's transcendence of like in, in his, in his presence, all Isaiah can do is like fall on his face before him um, was one of those things that again, like sometimes when we think about God, we are so flippant with him. It's almost like yeah. he's our, our buddy. He's like good guy that like, you know, maybe life's a little rough. So I'm going to call out to him like when things get hard. But other than that, he's sort of just like, my genie in a bottle, you know, I'll rub the lamp when I want him. Other than that, he can stay on the shelf Mm. when in reality, like he is the creator, the sustainer of the universe and all that it contains. And he is infinitely holy and we are not. So like, you know, obviously there's a chapter about our lack of holiness, um, but also like our call to be holy, like God is holy. Um, So yeah, like for me, it was, um, it was just really profound, mm. really like, I remember, it, actually, it's funny, when I, the first time I ever read it, it was while we were at Moody, uh, but I read it during valet shifts. So like, <laughs> I, I, when I when I worked my valet job in the city, uh, I'd be sitting at the valet box when it was like super slow on like a Tuesday night, right. and I was reading The Holiness of God. Wow. <laughs> um, so like, that was a really interesting locale for such a book but it was one that again was so profound and it's one i recommend all the time that's why it's on my list ah that's great yeah um my uh number two uh is actually a a collection of books um but it fits into one normal size book Uh, uh it's called early christian writings um it's the the penguin classics edition um, which Ooh. is a, re- a revised translation with an introduction by Andrew Luth. Um, I believe there's like this same collection was published earlier uh, and it was called something like the Apostolic Fathers or, or something like that. Um, the translator is Maxwell Staniforth, uh, you know, for what it's worth. Um, but it's a collection of early Christian writings from the first first like like early church so we're talking like second century third century um i don't think it gets i think they're all pre-nicaea like very early church um and the reason i'm suggesting it or saying that every christian should read it and this would be one that i would say like every christian needs to read it at some point um because it's a really accessible access it it's a really accessible collection of early Christian writings. And 
everything from, um, you know, Ignatius's epistles as he's going to be martyred to the Didache, which is a like basically an early book of of how to do liturgy and in, in Christian practice, um, and they're so important because they're so early. Um, these works in particular, and they're um, really important witnesses of early Christian faith and practice, um, and contain really significant, you know, pieces of theology as as Christian orthodoxy developed and was 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 sort of crystallized and finalized. Um, plus, it gives us access to apostolic tradition going back way earlier than you know someone like Augustine or uh, you know Thomas Aquinas or the reformers because um, so Polycarp um, he uh, one of his epistles is, is in this um, as well as the story of his martyrdom but Polycarp what was it he he was a disciple of John um, the disciple the the beloved disciple um, and then I think Ignatius was Polycarp's or, or Someone, you know, there's another significant who studied under, but like, so we're talking right up next to the apostles. We're talking about Polycarp, who wrote an epistle to the Philippians that's in this book, literally learned the faith from John. <laughs> uh, that's important. I don't know. You know, maybe that's another episode <laughs> we could talk about, like, you know, get dive, explore a little more why, you know, it. we should be going for the really drawn to the, the early um the early fathers, but um, it's it's a really really good resource because it's cheap, it's well written. You know the translation is is good. Um, there's a nice little introduction and some you know explanatory footnotes throughout and stuff. Um, and that's the the Penguin Classics edition um, of of the collection Early Christian Writings. Lit. Well, my number two may or may not come as a surprise depending on who you are and how well you know me. Um, you might have thought this one was going to be number one, um, but I, it's going to be number two. And it's the Institutes of the Christian <laughs> Religion by John Calvin. But here's the thing. So I know you mentioned earlier how like a big, thick book, like people might not be able to make their way through it. And granted, this is like 850 some pages. And the edition that I have is the Banner of Truth uh, Calvin's own essentials edition. So it's, so the, the institutes underwent like dozens of iterations when they first came out. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the very first edition that Calvin published, he was only 27. I'm 25. <laughs> Calvin put out the first edition, which was only like eight chapters, but still of the institutes at 27. Um, and, and from there it went through many iterations until it came to final form. Um, but this is like an essentials edition that was, um, it's it's technically the 1541 institutes like that's the year it was written and published mm. um but uh the institutes of the christian religion in, in this form like i guess that is about 900 pages which is a big book i understand um but its impact is um just too good to like not put on this list and i have a <laughs> caveat i have a caveat just just hold with me so the institutes are essentially um, Calvin's systematic theology, like what we have today as a modern sistheo, um, this is what Calvin was essentially trying to do. I mean, it's it's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, not the Christian Relationship, but um, um but <laughs> there's yeah, basically right like <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, it starts with knowledge of God, knowledge of man and free will. It talks about the law, faith and the Apostles' Creed, repentance, justification by faith, and like so on and so forth. But, like these chapters are so deep and rich. And from a man who um, obviously was deep in the Protestant Reformation um, with you know, I mean, Calvinism exists today. Uh, I know that's a, another probably topic we'll discuss in the future. So like Calvin is still someone that, that is talked about often, but right. often mistalked talked about people, people often caricaturize him and caricaturize Calvinism. Um, and so to read the institutes for yourself, you're like getting a very good, um, reformation era Sistheo that is also still very good and real and applicable today. And so here's my caveat. So if you don't want to sit down and read 900 pages of Institutes, you can pick up this little thing. It's a tiny little book. It's only 120 pages. It's called A Little Book on the Christian Life. So this is a book that is sort of um, taking key, like really, really key ideas from the Institutes and boiling boiling it down to like, I mean, it's called A Little Book on the Christian Life. Um, So for example... um, I'll read the chapter titles. There's only five of them. So um, Scripture's Call to Christian Living is chapter one. Chapter two, Self-Denial in the Christian Life. Uh, Chapter three, Bearing Our Cross. Four, Meditations on Our Future Life. And five, How the Present Life and Its Comforts Should Be Used. So like, man, this book is only 120 pages and it's, it's, even the pages themselves are super small. This book could probably be like 50 pages if it was a normal size. Um, but it's like, could almost fit in your pocket, a little book on the Christian life. Both of them are, I mean, it's all from the institutes. It's all the institutes. One's just in a more readable, easy to access form, um, but all really important because when we think about the Christian life and what it means to be a believer, I mean, we need, we need documents like this. I mean, you're talking about um, documents from like when the church was like being first founded, all super important. And like, Calvin interacts with like all those dudes like Calvin, you know, he'll talk about Augustine. He'll talk about Polycarp. He'll talk about, um, you know, Aquinas and people from the church as it was growing and, and maturing and expanding yeah. into the world. And the how inst- like the institutes hat, there are more citations of church fathers than scripture. Fun fact. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. But yeah, so that I think the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and I, the reason I joked that like it sort of is surprised, you might not be surprised that that's on my list, is because <laughs> I, mean, I have a tattoo of Calvin on my forearm, um, and I've already said that I'm Reformed, so that sort of plays my my hand. But um, still, a very important book that I think every Christian ought to at least read. The little book on the Christian life. Mm, really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, all right, my number one. I'm I'm definitely stoked about this drum one. roll um it is for the life of the world by alexander schmayman um, oh man <laughs> and this is quite a book um is so alexander schmayman uh if you don't know uh was a russian orthodox uh priest and theologian um he taught for a long time at saint vladimir seminary in new york um, and what he does in this book for the life of the world is basically walking through the liturgy, um, of, of the church. Um, and he, he takes, you know, a deep dive into these different details, like certain prayers or certain, um, je- you know, it's been a while since I read it, but like gestures or specific, you know, aspects of even like church architecture or the schedule 
of the Christian life. You know, the liturgy of time is, is you know, the the more <laughs> nice sounding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> way of saying that. Um, and um, what what he does so well, what the point of this book and why it's so important is that he he as he's walking through the different movements of the church's liturgy and the different aspects of the church's liturgy, he illuminates the ways in which the worship of the church extends beyond Sunday morning and, and not just beyond Sunday morning, but beyond the church building. Um, and, you know, it might be a little cliche to say like, Oh, you know, worship is life or worship is goes to all of life. But, but not just is, you know, there with us, you know, as we go through our, our regular schedule, but beyond shaping and defining um, just the gathered church, the, the, the liturgy of the church shapes and sanctifies all aspects of our life as we are completely reoriented um, to being worshipers of God. Um, hmm. And, you know, th- there are definitely some areas, if I'm remembering correctly, like some particular details particularly if you don't come from a liturgical church background uh, but like you know little details of of different features of russian orthodox liturgy might be kind of unfamiliar um to people christians of certain backgrounds but even with that his his insights into the liturgical um and that would include churches that would say they're not liturgical uh and priestly nature of what the church and the christian life are are really really important contributions um and he, he was writing in the in the 1900s and so you know he's writing in a very similar context to ours in terms of secularity and um living in the modern era as a a part of the church um and what and what does it mean for the church to fully live into and live out her identity in the modern world um, is definitely also part of what he's doing. Um, And I think we can all relate to this, you know, compartmentalization where, you know, I have my church life over here, my social life over here, my work life over here. And yeah, you know, they're all part of my life, but they don't really necessarily touch each other, um, you know, or or maybe certain aspects of, of them I like to keep separate. You know, I don't want God um, you know, what, what we do on Sunday doesn't need to mess with my career too much. Um, and I think that's just a really natural tendency, especially in just the, the society we live in to sort of separate out different areas of our life. But um, really, faith is, is, you know, more than relevant to daily life. Um, and, and he does a, Alexander Schmemann in this book does a really good job of, of arguing that and sort of proving that not by making arguments for it but by taking you on a journey through the life of the church by by exploring its liturgy and ultimately the title for the life of the world it's directed at the the worship of god and and the the uh bringing god to the world by being his light by by being his witnesses you know his witness the church here um and like i mentioned with the the book on violence earlier this is one of those books that <laughs> profoundly just <laughs> completely has shaped the way i look right. at liturgy the way i look at the church um and 
it i i don't i i would not have a lot of the the same opinions and and you know perspectives that i do have now if it wasn't for this book and one thing i will say too um is that this is a really really great starting point to alexander schmeyman um who has a lot of other work um that i'm you know right now i'm reading his book on the eucharist and it's 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 structured very similarly and it's just it's such a an amazing thing to read but this is definitely a great place to start um and it really, really, really has a lot to say that's really important. And I'm saying really a lot, but, um, you know, a lot of incredibly meaningful and significant observations and uh, sort of applications of what it means to be the church, what it means to be a Christian um, in the world, for the world, for worshiping God. And um, so I would highly recommend must read uh for the life of the world by alexander schmaven there you go well we've come to the final book (laughs) it's one that you may may or may not have heard of lucas um but it is one of my all-time favorite books and it is one that like obviously because it's my number one uh it's called the whole christ Hmm. it's by sinclair ferguson the subtitle is legalism antinomianism and gospel assurance why the marrow controversy still matters so i'm just gonna read like the inside flap because i think it's gonna do a lot better job explaining what the book is about than i could and then i'll just have a couple words to say so it says since the days of the early church christians have wrestled with the relationship between law and gospel if as the apostle paul says salvation is by grace and the law cannot save what relevance does the law have for christians today By revisiting the Marrow Controversy, a famous but largely forgotten 18th century debate related to the proper relationship between God's grace and our works, Sinclair Ferguson sheds light on this central issue and why it still matters today. In doing so, he explains how our understanding of the relationship between law and gospel determines our approach to evangelism, our pursuit of sanctification, and even our understanding of God himself. Ferguson shows that the antidote to the poison of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other is one and the same, the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, in whom we are simultaneously justified by faith, freed for good works, and assured of salvation. So, again, this is a, a huge, huge, huge book for me. It's, it's really important because of, I mean, this, this, the whole Christ, but the, the subtitle, Legalism, antinomianism and gospel assurance and so he says that there's there's these two poisons the the poison of legalism so like it's all law everything's about like following these rules doing this doing this doing this or else you're not justified Uh, so legalism on the one hand and then antinomianism which is just a fancy word that means no law anti nomenclature uh, that's where we get the word law Um, so legalism versus um, so all law versus no law basically and mm. what that means for our assurance as Christians, because, you know, as, as believers, we would say that we, we shouldn't be legalists. We also shouldn't be antinomianists, um, right. but we should be um, grounded in, uh, you know, where our assurance is actually found. And that's in Christ, in his gospel, in his work. Um, so it's, it's a really important book that explores that relationship. It explores that dynamic of like, what is the role of the Ten Commandments in the law? Uh, what is the... Uh, the purpose of it, you know, there's there's also a little bit of a discussion about like, you know, um, 
faith without works is dead. Uh, but on the other hand, like works don't save anybody. So like, what's the interplay mm, between right. even some of what scripture would say? Um, and so there's, there's some conversation about that too. Um, but I think it's a really important book, especially in our day, because I remember growing up in a, in a context that often felt, um, a little legalist. Like I remember even going to Moody and there was like, like, Oh, you're such a legalist. Like, don't like, don't you know, bind my conscience. Don't put like, I don't, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Like how there's just some of those people that like, you know, with, with living under the SLG, like the student life agreement, like as, <laughs> yeah. as, as students at Moody, we had this, uh, this form that we essentially had to sign and abide by or else face consequences. Um, and it often felt very legalistic, like things right. that scripture says we can do, like as, as believers, we can drink alcohol. Um, we have to do it in moderation. Um, but the SLG at Moody would say you are not allowed to drink while you're a student enrolled at Moody. That's on campus, off campus, during breaks, doesn't matter. You're not allowed to drink. And so like in in a context like that, like I, I always encountered people that were like just we don't want legalism. And so then they swing to the other side and it's antinomianism, which is like, we don't have any law. We're, we're Christians. We're free to do whatever we want. We have grace. There's grace, 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 grace upon grace, which is true. Like grace is beautiful. Grace is unmerited. Um, but we also know that like, should we continue to sin that grace may abound <laughs> by no means, is, you know, what Paul says. And so it's, it's a beautiful book that like, you know, looks at these two sides that we often are, tempted to sway to and it grounds us in the middle uh, of where our assurance truly is found so that's why it's in my top five wow that's great yeah i actually i've never even i've heard of sinclair ferguson but i've never even heard of that book but that he's he's one of my favorite authors and he like if you've ever heard him speak like if you just all of you right now stop (laughs) listening to our podcast for a moment go to youtube and google sinclair ferguson because he has like the coolest voice like he's i think he's like scottish or irish or something nice yes he's got a super cool accent (laughs) anyway (laughs) awesome all right i mean yeah so those are our books uh top five ish (laughs) books that every christian should read. maybe that'll be the title top five ish yeah (laughs) um any any i know you know any closing thoughts in terms of just you know what it was like to to think this through or, or any like encouragements you'd give to people who are, are yeah, listening for sure and and as we said in the beginning like you and i both love books and um i think it's really important and it's something that we've noted before and we will continue to note that even even as we read we're not just reading to absorb information we're not just reading to be like i read 500 books this year or like whatever like <laughs> but we're reading to have um our minds and our hearts conformed um, to reality, to uh, to Christ, to being um, better, more faithful, more obedient followers yeah. and disciples. And so um, that's why it's important to read. Like I know sometimes it's not the most fun, like the Institutes, for example, even though it's my number two book, like technically I haven't read the whole thing yet. I mean, I've read a big enough chunk where it's like it's bigger than most books, but like <laughs> It's one of those things that I can only read so much at a time. I can't sit down like with a novel and just like pound through it in a couple hours. Like it takes, it takes time to like dwell on some of the thoughts. It takes time to like sort of like weave your way through Mm -hmm. arguments and to see like, what is this author trying to communicate? How is it relevant? How is it important? And so that's why we, the idea that, you know, we had sort of in wanting to record this episode was to give you 
ideas of books to read because maybe you've never read any theology books maybe you're not familiar with many books so you just want like a starting place and so these i think are really good starting places especially if you're a new believer especially um, if you're wanting to learn more about holiness or sexuality or early christian writers or whatever i think they're all really important yeah definitely i second that uh i think that's really well said and an important reminder of of just like everything that we try to do here at on this podcast, that it's for doxology, it's for worship, it's for serving our right. neighbors, loving God, and um, knowing him more in that process. Um, so thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Doxology Podcast. Uh, we wanted to make a special note um, just mentioning how much we appreciate all kinds of feedback um, from, from you listeners. And if you've got um, anything to share, uh, please do so. Um, we are definitely in the early stages as far as being a podcast, as far as writing these episodes, recording these episodes, you know, getting in the swing of things, sort of finding our footing um, as as podcasters and also as a podcast. Um, so we appreciate, you know, bearing with sort of the growing pains that, that we have uh, or, or may, you know, come to have. Um, and we're definitely going to continue evolving, you know, fine-tuning, learning as we go, all that kind of stuff. So we appreciate um, both bearing with us through the, those, those you know, beginning stages as well as, as um, uh, providing any feedback that, that, you, that you think of. Um, this, uh, this podcast is a good picture of the Christian life about, you know, in the early stages, <laughs> you're trying to fine tune things. You're trying to get a hold of what it looks like to be a Christian, to live in the world, but not of the world. So it's a, it's a good picture of the Christian life for you. <laughs> <laughs> and just like the Christian life, we will never be perfect. <laughs> there you uh, go. Sorry, John Wesley. Anyway. Okay. If you'd like to connect with us, give us some of that sweet feedback, hit us up on Twitter doxology podcast or you can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com um, questions concerns uh, arguments uh, criticisms uh, episode ideas uh, if you're you know gonna yell at us we'll probably just ignore you but feel free we'd love to hear from you or let us know let us know your five favorite books if you're someone who likes to read too i like to see people's lists too oh yeah definitely tweet tweet those at doxology podcast all right thank you peace peace Thank you.